0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Friendship, and it is great to have you with us. And I just want to say again, thank you to our communications team for putting that video together that introduces the sermon series uh, so well. Really appreciate the time and the effort that they put into that. Uh, Speaking of worship, yesterday I had some time before kickoff of the Vikings preseason game And so I sat down on the couch as my wife was making banana bread, and I began to just play songs about the goodness of God. And as I sat there on the couch by myself, I became what I would call prayerfully overwhelmed by the goodness of God that he has expressed through Jesus as our substitution. I want to give you a minute right now to just prayerfully be overwhelmed By the goodness of God in what he has done through Jesus Christ. So good. Such great love. Such blessing. We want to worship our God in in here. We want to worship our God on the couch at home. And as this sermon series is about, we want to worship our God in our work. Last week, we kicked off this series with some fundamental understandings of what the Bible has to say about work. And we saw that our God is a worker. That it is the nature of God to work. We also saw that because God has made us in His image, that we were also designed to work. In our ideal state, in the paradise of all paradises, we are workers. Yet, yesterday as I was outside doing some yard work, it didn't feel like bliss. When I was done and came inside, I went, yeah, I'm glad that's over. Wait, why? Well, Genesis chapter 3 showed us that because of the effects of sin, work isn't all that God intended it to be. In fact, work is now, because of sin, hard, painful, frustrating, and you've experienced that in your work. At some point, maybe this week, and the great news that we looked at last week is that God is in the process of redeeming you, and He is going to redeem all of the creation. He is going to make it new, and we saw that in the new heaven and the new earth, we will be participating in work that is freed from all of these, uh, all of these structures of sin. That we will be able to work in ways that aren't frustrating, that don't fail, where we don't experience pain, where we don't experience hardship. Instead, work that's always blessed, always successful, always glorifies God and His good. Right? Can you imagine? That, that is what God is doing. He is making all things new. He's making you new. He's making the creation new. And through that, He is renewing work. But Jesus hasn't just saved us. For heaven someday, has he? Jesus has absolutely saved us so that we will be made fully new in heaven. But isn't he in the process of making us new right now? Isn't he in the process of redeeming us right now so that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and he transforms us and makes us more and more like Christ? I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 32 this morning. And the reason we're looking at those verses is because Ephesians 4 is all about what it looks like to live new life in Christ. In Ephesians 4, Paul says to the Ephesians, you've been saved by Jesus, so you can't live in your old ways. You've been saved by Jesus, so you can't live in the world's ways Instead, you're to live in entirely new ways because Jesus has saved you and he's your king. And in Ephesians 4.24, he says, and to put on the new self. No more old self. Put away the world. Put away the old self. Instead, put on day after day the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The Holy Spirit begins to work in the lives of those who've been saved by Jesus Christ, and He begins the transformation process now. And yes, that transformation process will only be completed in heaven, right? But for right now, He's growing us, making us new, and calls us to put on that newness day in and day out. This is true of every aspect of our lives. God doesn't call us to put on newness of life at church And then go ahead and live whatever way you want at work. He he, he calls us to put on this newness of life in every aspect of our lives. And so we put on this newness of life that is like Christ Jesus. It's in the likeness of God. It's righteous. It's holy. We put that on at church, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships with our friends, and, of course, at work. That's our focus. And throughout the rest of Ephesians 4, all right, God walks us through five different, very specific ways that we live out newness of life. And I want us to think about these five specific ways that God talks about us living out new life in Christ, particularly in light of our work. And the first is this, what does it look like to live out new life in Christ? It is an honest life. What does it mean to be like Jesus in our workplace? It means to be honest. Therefore is the first word. In light of the fact that Jesus has saved you and is calling you to put off the old self and the worldly self and to put on the new self, in light of all of that, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Lying is pervasive in our culture. Is it ever a surprise to you when a public figure is caught lying? Is it a, a shock to you when you find out that a politician has lied? Isn't it a shock to you when you find out a politician has told the truth? Right? Are, are you ever shocked when we find out that one of our professional athletes or a celebrity has lied? Right? No! This isn't shocking to us. When we find out that 250 students at Harvard signed an honesty pledge in one of their classes. And less than a month later, we're all caught cheating together, sharing test scores or test answers. Is that a surprise to us? It's not a surprise to us, is it? It's not a shock, because lying is pervasive in our culture. And nowhere is there more lying that takes place than in the workplace. I'm reminded of the old story about the store owner who caught his clerk telling a woman that was there trying to buy something, no ma'am, we haven't had any for a while and it doesn't look as if we're going to be getting any soon. Horrified, the manager waited for the customer to leave and went over and addressed the manager and said, never, never, he snarled, say we're out of anything, say we have it on order and it's on its way and then go and order it. Now, what was it that she wanted? Rain, said the clerk. (laughs) Lying takes place in the workplace in order to get out of trouble. There was a phone call that we were supposed to make. We didn't, and we tell someone that we did. There was a report that we were supposed to have done, and it's not done. And we tell someone, it is, it's almost there. Well, actually, we haven't started, but it's almost done. We work this number of hours, but we record this number of hours. Lying is pervasive within the workspace. Sometimes we lie in order to exaggerate our importance. Numbers get inflated. That's a nice way of saying we lie. Reports get inflated in order to exaggerate our importance. It is challenging for us as believers when we see lies all around us to not enter in and be a part of that lying culture. It is a challenge for us when we see lying around us to not enter into lies in order to try and keep up. It is a temptation when uh, 25 years ago, I used to play golf with a guy who regularly seemed to lose 10 to 12 strokes off of his score every time we played. Uh, We'd go out and play and he would shoot a six on a hole and later on I would see it was recorded as a five and this happened on most of the holes and I felt like I was beating him hole after hole and we'd get done and he would have beaten me by five shots and it was so hard to not start to lose strokes off of my score in order to keep up. And we face that same temptation in the workplace. If lying is the standard in our workplace, if people are exaggerating things, if people are lying to, to get out of trouble, it is tempting to us to go along in order to keep up. But of course, as believers, it isn't our goal to keep up with our coworkers it isn't even our goal to keep our jobs. What is our goal? Our goal is to glorify Jesus and become more like Him. And so we don't give in to those temptations to lie. We never give in to those temptations to lie within the workplace. Uh, About 1,700 years ago, there was a guy named Jerome. And Jerome translated much of the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin in a translation that became very important to the church called the Vulgate. And he had a great quote about how important truth-telling is within the Christian community and for Christians. He wrote this, Lying is indeed an accursed vice. We are men and we have relations with one another only by speech. If we recognize the horror and gravity of an untruth, we should more justifiably punish it with fire than any other crime." I commonly find people taking the most ill-advised pains to correct their children for their harmless faults and worrying them about heedless acts which leave no trace and have no consequences. Lying is, in my opinion, the only fault whose birth and progress we should consistently oppose. It grows with a child's growth, and once the tongue has got the knack for lying, it's difficult to imagine how impossible it is to correct it. As believers, we never want to be a part of this lying culture because we serve a Savior who said He is the what? The truth. And He said, I'm going to send my Spirit, and my Spirit is going to lead you into all truth. And so we recognize that in a world filled with lying, filled with exaggeration, filled with changing things, that we're a people who are committed to constant honesty in the workplace and in our lives. What is the first way that we live the new life and live the new life in our workplace? We're honest. We're honest. The second thing that this passage talks about, the way that we live the new life in our workplace, is by resolving anger appropriately. Look at the next two verses in Ephesians 4. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil As we have seen before, it is not a sin to be angry. Jesus was angry, Luke chapter 3. God is said to be angry. If you go through this world filled with brokenness and people harming each other and you're not angry at some point, then there's something wrong with you. It is not wrong to be angry. The command that we receive in Scripture is that when we are angry, we shouldn't allow it to lead us into sin. We handle our anger with righteousness instead of with sin. Within the workplace, anyone ever make you angry? Right? Anyone ever frustrating to you? Your boss, the way they treat you, the decisions your boss make, is that ever angry, angering or frustrating to you? If you're the boss, anything that those who work for you do that ever gets you upset or angry? How about your coworkers and some of the stupid decisions that they make, the way that they're wrecking projects, the way that they treat others, right? Does it ever anger you or frustrate you? The call to the believer is to not handle that with sin, but instead handle that in ways that are right. What does that look like, right? What are the primary ways that we're tempted to sin when we're angry or frustrated, I think the primary way that we are tempted to sin when we're angry or frustrated is with our words. It it is rare that we punch other people in the workplace, rare that we contemplate blowing up our workplace. Instead, the primary way that we sin when we're angry or frustrated is with the way that we use our words. Somebody angers us and instead of dealing with them in the fruit of the spirit of gentleness, and kindness, we give full vent to our anger and blow up at them. Right? This is sin in the midst of our anger. Even more common, somebody angers us or frustrates us, and we gossip about them. Right? We talk about them negatively behind their back. Anyone ever experienced that? Sometimes we combine gossiping about those that we're frustrated with with complaining and grumbling. You guys remember what Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says? It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The world is filled with people who in the midst of anger and frustration handle it by gossiping, grumbling, and complaining. God says, my people shine as lights by handling their frustration and anger in a completely different way than that. I was talking to a guy recently, and he said that his boss had made a decision at work that wasn't very popular, and it had led to a lot of hallway conversations. Are you familiar with that term, hallway conversations? I wasn't. And so I said, what's a hallway conversation? He said, it's when people are frustrated with what the boss has done and they meet in the hallway to talk about how frustrated they are about what the boss has done. Right? Should Christians ever be involved in hallway conversations where they are grumbling and complaining and talking about their boss behind their back? Right? That, that doesn't sound like what Jesus has called us to. Instead of handling our anger with sin, we're to handle our anger in righteousness. What does that look like? Well, it looks like dealing with our frustrations and anger directly. Matthew 5, Matthew 18, handling things directly rather than talking about people behind their back. It also looks like handling things gently, Galatians 6.1. Rather than ripping people apart, we're to handle things with, with gentleness and kindness as we talk to people. And so when we look to Jesus, we see a gentle directness that we're meant to employ as we deal with our anger and our frustration. We resolve anger appropriately. This is what it means to live the new life in our workplace. The third way that we live out the new life and live it out in our workplace is by working hard. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In a couple of weeks, we're going to focus on the idea of working hard so that you can share with those who are in need. But during this sermon, I want to look at the idea of not stealing and working hard instead. How do people steal from their employer? Well, there there may be fudged accounting reports. There, There may be the stealing of supplies, right? People are taking home lots of extra pens or something from their workplace. I don't know. But isn't the primary way that people steal from their employer theft of time? That they are getting paid to work and they are not working instead? Isn't that the primary way that people steal from their employer? Instead of putting in a hard day of labor as their employer has contracted with them to do, they are instead using that time for other things. That's the primary theft that goes on, as a matter of fact. In a recent Forbes survey, 83 percent of those surveyed said that they spend time every day during their work day going onto websites that are not work-related. Over half of those people said they spend at least an hour per day on websites that are not work-related. OK, now, everybody's jobs are a little different. I get that. And so your job may may look a little different in terms of some freedoms and how you use that. But when we're getting paid by our employer, it is stealing from our employer to spend two hours buying things off of Amazon. That is not the hard day's work that they're calling us to, and it's not the hard day's work that reflects well on the name of Jesus. And so we want to be a people who are not stealing from our employer, but instead are doing a good and hard day's work. The kind of work that we put in reflects on our relationship with God. And so I love the way Martin Luther King Jr. put it in a sermon. He says this, If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music, sweep the streets so well that all the host of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Because honest, hard work reflects on Christ. And we are to be a people who are not stealing from our employers, but instead are putting in good, honest, hard labor. And so we see that Living out the new life in our workplace means working hard, working hard. Fourth, what does it mean to live out the new life and live it out in our workplace? It means speaking with encouraging words. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption." It is possible for us to grieve God's Holy Spirit by speaking words to other people that tear them down instead of build them up. The word here for corrupting speech is a word that means to spread disease or putrefy. We can disease or damage other people's minds and souls through the words that we speak to them. And this says that is never to be a part of the life of the believer. We're never to speak those kinds of words. Instead, we're to speak words that add to others, that build up others, that bring the grace of God into other people's lives. One time when my kids were young, we were out doing a a family day on Saturday, and it involved some fun things and some not-so-fun things, and one of my kids was in a bad place that day. They'll remain nameless. And they were regularly complaining about all of the different things that we were doing and the way that we were spending that day. And finally, I couldn't take it anymore. And so with the car parked and the complaining started, I turned around and I said to this particular child, if the next words out of your mouth are not to praise God encourage someone else, or share a necessary fact. I don't want to hear them. And then as we sat there in the silence of the car, I began to think, how often do I need to pay attention to that in my own life? How often do I speak words that don't fall into those categories? Words that aren't helpful. Words that harm others or tear them down. As followers of Jesus, one of the ways that we live the new life in Christ day in and day out and live it in our workplace is through the words that we speak. They're words of encouragement and praise instead of words that tear down. Final way that this passage talks about us living out new life in Christ and living it out in our workplace is this be kind. Be kind. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. There is a lot in those verses right there. there there's a lot. But I would summarize it all with the phrase, be kind. He, he talks about there being... Uh, bitterness, lashing out at others, slander, malice, clamoring. These things are all the opposite of kindness. And he says, these shouldn't be a part of your life, follower of Jesus. Instead, the follower of Jesus is to be someone who is kind and tender-hearted, who's merciful towards others. We are to be a people who are kind. And because the fruit of the Spirit are growing in our lives, we should be, as followers of Jesus, people who are growing in kindness. So if you make it to 40 years old, and you're a follower of Jesus, you should be significantly more kind than you were at 20. And if the Lord should be kind to you, and you live to 80 years old, you should be significantly more kind than you were at 40. Because God's Spirit dwells in you, and He lives in you, and He is growing kindness in you. Growing that kindness and that love and that gentleness. So important. So important that we are the people of kindness in our workplace. I had a conversation with my daughter when she was in the sixth grade that is forever emblazoned in my memory. Well, she initiated the conversation by telling me, Dad, I'm never going to be exceptional at anything. I said, what? She said, I'm never going to be great at anything. She began to then talk about what greatness and looked like and what she was thinking. And she began to list people. People who were exceptional in her orchestra at playing particular instruments. People who were exceptional at certain sports. People who were exceptional at school or exceptional in their jobs. And she says to me, Dad, I am never going to be exceptional at anything. Now, I disagreed with her sixth grade assessment. And I suppose at this point, I could have argued with her. I just said, Maddie, you're going to be exceptional at sports, so you're going to be exceptional in your grades. But in an all-too-rare moment, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I did not argue with her I did not argue with her, telling her, no, no, you're going to be exceptional in the things that the world values. Instead, what I said to her was, Maddie, I live with you day in and day out, and you are exceptional. I live with you day in and day out, and you are exceptional at kindness. You are exceptionally kind. You are A sixth grade girl who's exceptional at kindness. That is a rare animal. You are so kind. And she was unbelievably kind. And she is to this day one of the kindest people that I know. And that's so important. One day, she's going to stand before the Lord. And I guarantee that what will be important to her heart and mind as she stands before the Lord will not be the grades that she got. It will not be how high she jumped. It will not be how well she played an instrument. And it won't be how many promotions she got at work. What is going to matter to her as she stands before the Lord is how she used her resources to show the kindness of God to other people in her life. Our our society has so many things twisted around and so many priorities messed up. And ultimately, what matters is the kindness of Jesus Christ being expressed to others. And so when we go to work, it is ultimately important that we are the people that everybody looks at and goes, they're the kind person, they're the tender-hearted person. The person who, when we drive up in our car, people go, I'm so thankful they're here because they are kind and they are forgiving and they are tenderhearted and I want to be around them. That's God's call in our life, to be the new person that He's made us to be. And that means being kind, being kind. What what does it look like to be the new person that Christ has made us to be? What, What does it look like to be that new person at work? It means to be honest, to resolve anger appropriately, to work hard, to speak encouraging words, to be kind. As we think about these things, I want to encourage you to take a picture of them, write them down, and keep that next to you where you work most often. That may mean where you prepare homeschool lessons that may mean in your workplace, at your job. That may mean next to the sink where you seem to do an endless number of dishes. Wherever it is. Right? I, I want you to write it down. Take a picture of it. Because this is God's design for what it means to live the new life in Christ. Be honest. Resolve anger appropriately. Work hard. Speak encouraging words. Be kind. If you're anything like me, as we talk about what it means to live out Christ-likeness in our lives and to live out these steps of righteousness and holiness, if you're anything like me, you're thinking of failures that have taken place in your life. Right? I know I'm not the only one. You're thinking about how you weren't honest last Tuesday. You're thinking about how your words haven't been encouraging many days. You're thinking about how you're not particularly known for kindness. You haven't been kind or you weren't kind a few weeks ago. Whatever it is, you're thinking about ways in which you failed to live up to what it looks like to be the new person in Christ. And I want to pause before we enter into the Lord's Supper, recognize that's true of all of us. That as we look at this list, all of us can find failures from last Tuesday, from weeks gone by, certain things where it's happened over and over again. And that as we go to the table, we recognize it is in the midst of those sins that Christ chose to die for us. It is while we were still sinners, not being honest, not being kind, using our words to tear people down, not resolving anger appropriately, using our work time for things that isn't meant, it is why we were in the midst of that wrongdoing, in the midst of that sin, that Jesus chose to go to the cross for us. Our forgiveness is isn't because we're perfect in these areas. Our forgiveness is because Jesus is perfect and He's the perfect substitution on our behalf. And that's what we celebrate at this table.